This episode is brought to you by Made by Music, the new podcast from Cambridge Audio. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. And you can probably hear in the background his squeaky chair. Joining me this time out is Srijan Ibayan. Welcome back, Srijan. Thanks. And that wasn't my chair. That was my grey cells kicking in. Okay, okay. And Srijan, today you're going to lead, right? You're going to lead us through a conversation about a speaker that both you and I have had. How long have you had the Zoo DWX in your house? I probably had them um, five weeks before they made Onward Tracks. Right now they're with David in mm. Warsaw. So he's going to cover them on his website, hifinights.com. Uh-huh. But before that, I had them for about five weeks, yeah. Okay. So I've had my pair for about five weeks, six weeks. I think they arrived just before I came back to Berlin at the start of July. So yeah, I guess I was running them for four solid weeks before I kind of really started to take any any notes or anything like that, you know? Well, I guess the way I would lead was, is did you expect them to be this big? No. Well, <laughs> I guess, well, yes, because I'd seen photos and I'd seen um, Zoo's own video about them. <clears throat> but I guess <laughs> Zoo called them medium format. And there's no way, it's a large stand mountain loud speaker. It's a large format speaker. Maybe it's just I'm not in tune with American thinking or the way that Americans scale things. In fact, actually, do you know, I do know that these arrived before I came back from Portugal because they arrived to my neighbor and my neighbor phoned me and went, I've got your, uh, your delivery. And it looks like somebody sent you a, like a washing machine, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> <laughs> See, it's not just me. Like <laughs> it was a, it's a big box, and or, is it two boxes or one box? I can't remember now. Uh, two, two, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, it's a big package. But anyway, yes, they are. <laughs> they're they're sizable stand mount loudspeakers, which is something I kind of I've not really had too much experience with until this year. So the first thing that I think we should cover is the finish. Because mm -hmm. both you and I have the uh, Zoo Soul 6. And at least on my pair, the finish is also a stained wood. Yes. But they somehow filled in all the grain with some, it's probably some kind of a polyester clear lacquer. Mm. And then it's been, I would assume, sanded down somehow. So it's like a glass finish. It's very hard and it's super smooth. But on this pair, the DWX, which is the Dirty Weekend X, the finish is very different. The grain is exposed. And if I had to describe it, it's like imagine a little gnat, like one of those tiny miniature creatures, smaller than a mosquito, being on a roller on a rollerboard, like on roller skates, skating down that finish. And they would trip up because the grain is so exposed. There's like these deep, if you were a gnat, they'd be deep, right? Mm -hmm. There's these, uh, the wood grain, the lines. They're completely exposed. And not only that, but my finish had like a lot of burls and like uh, yep. knots, yep. like things that you usually would not see on a quote-unquote fine bookend finished veneer match speaker. But Zoo went with something funkier that I actually really enjoyed because there's a lot of sort of, there's lots of 
different colors. You also see where the different panels butt together because they're not matched. One will be really wild and the other one will be sort of, you know, very modest. So it's a funky finish, but I think it's really, really well done. I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the fact that it's not a, a lacquer, so it's not painted over, but you see all the wood grain through. Do you wish that your Soul 6 would finish like this? Um, no, I like them for being different. Okay. I like them both. They are more expensive. So I think they deserve sort of like, uh, you know, a fancier finish. And because they're sitting further away from me, where they are set up in our living room with uh, the TV in between, they look just fabulous from the distance. Hmm. I had uh, the, the WDX sitting on my stands right next to the monitor that I'm speaking to you now. So they were like within, you know, within less than a meter and I could really see the veneer and that was really cool. So I think especially for the price, I really thought that you had done an excellent job on, on the finish. You got the red and I got the teal. I, I mean, I love, I love the finish, but I guess, you know, the, the word funky is, is probably going to be used several times this podcast, I would think, I hope. Because it is, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit more unusual than the, the, the wood grain, say, on the, the Wharfdale Linton that I have, which are a very similar sized loudspeaker. And I'm not saying that the, the veneer is better or worse on the zoo, but I, yeah, I think the color staining is something that you wouldn't, well, you wouldn't see Wharfdale do it, I don't think. Not on a heritage sort of vintage style speaker like that anyway. But yeah, I think they do sort of fit with that idea that loudspeakers are pieces of audio furniture hmm. so you know they need to look look the part so i know that a lot of people love black gloss don't they and i can't i can't stand it Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> piano black gloss you know you have to walk away from it for 20 minutes and then a layer of dust is settled across the top exactly. yeah so and that actually that is a point is that the soul six because my pair in portugal yeah, they pick up dust pretty pretty quickly, but these, because they're a matte finish, they're not gloss, you don't tend to notice the dust as much. Well, I don't notice it until Olaf comes over, we film something, he's like, can you get your dust on this, please? <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's my, my dust police. So I guess the next thing we should talk about is that you look at the speaker, and if you have it set up right side up, so the port is at the bottom, mm -hmm. it looks like a two-way. Yes. And what we should explain is that actually, technically, we should call it a one and a half way. Now, what does that mean? The one way would be the big 10-inch driver staring at us with that metal face plug in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's the one way because there's no crossover on it. There's no low pass and there's no high pass. So mm -hmm. our amplifier outputs via the cable connect directly to the voice coil of that driver. Zero crossover, direct coupled. But the little tweeter in its waveguide, that has a high pass, which is a filter that determines at what frequency that driver kicks in. Mm -hmm. And it's the most simple, the simplest form of a crossover, which is called a first order, executed with a single capacitor. Yes. And it's set so that that tweeter kicks in at 12 kilohertz, which is why in your original video review, you called it a quote unquote super tweeter. And you did that not because this tweeter goes out to 100 kilohertz like some diamond version, but because the area that it's covering is well above where the usual tweeter kicks in, which is, tends to be 2 kilohertz. 
And here I think we need to make an extra point, and that is that if we're talking about tone or fundamentals, hmm. not the overtones, not the harmonics, the highest tone that an instrument can actually produce, shy of a synthesizer, would be just about four kilohertz. Okay. A violin, a little piccolo flute, certainly no singer can can produce a tone whose fundamental frequency is higher than that. Okay. Which means that our little super tweeter in the zoo, kicking in at 12 kilohertz, produces no fundamental. In fact, if we take a one kilohertz tone, right, that is in what we call the presence region, plus minus, mm -hmm. yeah. and we take the second harmonic, which is an octave higher, now we are at two kilohertz. Mm -hmm. We take the fourth harmonic, which is another octave higher, we're now at four kilohertz. We are still not in the realm of the super tweeter. We are still in the realm of what the big 10-inch driver produces, or more correctly, the wizard cone, which is what is the, the inner about four inch wide, sort of flared on edge secondary cone that works as a de facto tweeter. Doesn't need a crossover, it's like mechanically decoupled. Mm -hmm. So what this little tweeter in this waveguide does, it's doing purely harmonics and it's only doing the uppermost upper harmonics of really high tones. Because if you take a mid bass note, even the 10th harmonic will still fall to the wither cone. So that super trader is doing very, very little indeed. It's just sort of the fizz, the, that airy fizz that if you cut it off, nothing really substantial goes away at all. You just lose some air. Hmm. So that's why I think the technical term would be it's a one and a half way. And so we've established now that the big driver does not have a crossover. It couples directly. And one of the benefits is that you don't have any sort of phase shift inducing energy absorbing parts between the amplifier and the driver. Right. And a benefit of the driver that Zoo has been using since when I reviewed the first Druid, it was 2005. Mm -hmm. It was already based on this 10.3 inch concept. It's that it's higher sensitivity than usual. They rate it at 95 dB. And what that means is that people like you and I that don't really listen to any peaks higher than about 85 dB in our listening seat, that's when it gets really loud. This speaker does not really need more than one watt to play as loud as we want. Now, granted, mm -hmm. for certain bass transients where we want more current, we do need more power. But come 20 watts, that's probably all this speaker will actually ever really need for normal use. So that makes it really appealing to people that want to try out a low-power triode amplifier or a solid-state version like that Enlium Amp23R that I reviewed and you reviewed as well. It's mm -hmm. the perfect amplifier for this type of speaker. Now... Can I come in there on that, actually? Because by I think, all means, please. So I think what I, I do like about high-efficiency speakers it's not only because the people can try low-powered amps, but it also removes the anxiety of a consumer thinking, okay, I, well, I might get that that name and it's only 40 watts per channel. Is that going to be enough to power my Dyn audios? And that's a, that's a very valid question. 
But that question dissolves in the presence of Zoom because you don't have to worry about will there be enough power. All you have to worry about is will I like the sound of these two together? So Correct. you'll have enough oomph to kind of control the the ten inch driver. There'll be there'll be no, no question over that. I mean, obviously, a I guess a three watt single ended triode might be a bit looser than a fifty watt solid stator. So there's variations there, but I think. It just removes the level of anxiety that I think a lot of audiophiles have in going in when they're choosing loudspeakers. Like, I, I don't want to choose something that's going to restrict me too much on the amp, and how am I going to know if there's enough power on tap to power my loudspeakers? And even when, excuse me, even when you see, because I see this a lot in my comment section, people say, I bought this amp, but I'm still not sure. You know, like, I'm a bit uncertain. Is it is it really driving or doing justice to my loudspeakers? And again, with the zoos, you don't, that just doesn't really come in come into play. Not, I won't say at all, but not as nowhere near as much. Right, and I think there is another benefit that you and I completely agree on, which is usually not that well covered in audio reviews, and that is that these speakers come on song at low volume levels. Yeah, which uh, and you actually called it. They give you a lot of satisfaction at yes. sort of late evening, because other speakers will play low, of course, as well but they won't give you the same satisfaction. You feel the need to crank it up more until the speaker sort of shows up in full and you feel, okay, now the music has finally arrived and before something was missing, it was too too diluted, too washed out. And the mm. Zoo is really, really good at sounding good already at low volume levels. And I think that's ideal for people that have family, where kids may, may go to bed early, people that live in apartments or flats that have neighbors mm -hmm. that want to be able to listen at nine o'clock in the evening, or maybe even on a Sunday morning at like eight o'clock in the morning when everybody else still is asleep. Mm. And you know that you can. And to me, that's very practical because that means that that new toy that you bought, that you bought for enjoyment, you actually can use more and not less. You don't have to be so aware of not sort of bothering your neighbors. I think that's a really important asset and the zoo deliver that. Well, I think also if you buy a more sort of pint-sized two-way stand mount that I, I think you and I have covered loads of these down the years. I mean, I love them. But as you say, they do white out, I think that's your term, white out at, at lower volumes. And to avoid that, you generally almost always, especially this is the way I, I see it now, almost always need to attach a subwoofer into that system, especially if you do want that sort of low-level satisfaction. Right. Otherwise, it's, a, it's an extra expense to get that on top of your pint-sized two-way. So it's something to think about if you are yeah, an apartment dweller, a low-level listener, a late-night listener, you've got family. There's, just, there's so many practical benefits to having a – I mean, it's not just these. It's the Klipsch as well, but like, you know, and, and JBLs. and. Well, I think on the subject of subwoofer that you just brought up, I think that's mm. a good point to like go in and ask ourselves – does this speaker need a subwoofer? And in my opinion, I would say that there's a little bit of a disconnect between the raw size of the driver and what you assume that means for how low it will go. And here we have to remember that this driver goes all the way out to 12 kilohertz, and mm -hmm. then it sort of tapers out acoustically, and that's where the tweeter comes in electrically. Mm -hmm. In order for that driver to be able to do that, to go up that high, it can't, by the same token, go down maximally low. Mm -hmm. So there is 
smaller speakers with like a six and a half inch driver that that is a rear ported speaker that will actually go lower mm -hmm. but even in my bigger room which is six by eight meters and i think yours is five by six yes except for the occasional ambient electronica track that i know has 25 hertz sub bass on it mm. because i i got a dual two you know 15 inch subwoofer that shows me what's there except for tracks like that i didn't really miss anything not like consciously so i would say that even though i would rate the zoo in room at the sitting position at probably about 45 ish mm -hmm. somewhere in there so technically there's an entire octave missing but subjectively, and we get to that later, I didn't think I needed a subwoofer. So I think most people in standard size and small rooms particularly will not want a subwoofer. And now we might want to ask, well, if Zoo, or I should say since Zoo, also has the DW6, hmm. which is the floor-standing version that adds another foot of height, mm -hmm. same footprint, same driver configuration, just add a foot worth of cabinet all the way to the floor. That's, I believe, $200 more than the base version of the monitor. Mm -hmm. Why would you get the monitor if for 200 euros or dollars more, you can get the floor standard? I have a really good answer for that. And I'd be curious what your answer would be to that question. I want to just come in on subs before I answer that, because okay. I think in answering the question, do the DWX need a sub? I would say it's borderline. So like you, most of the time, very happy. Some of the time I'm like, oh, I'd love a little bit more oomph in the, right in the sub base there. But I do know like other, well, like I could think of a, a, a YouTuber hi-fi friend in London who just wants to put a subwoofer on everything. <laughs> He's just like, no, needs more bass, John. So I know that some people do have that mindset, and maybe home theater people do, so they might find these are a little bit light. And of course, as you suggested, when you look at a 10-inch driver, that's the kind of driver, 10 inches, what you see in a lot of subwoofers, right? So you think, well, it's going to go really low. But it's obviously, as you say, voice to kind of go higher. So there is a bit of cognitive dissonance or, or a, dis a disconnect there. Because you might get a 10-inch sub and go, well, why have I got a 10-inch sub when I've got a 10-inch driver in my speaker? Well, it's different jobs, isn't it? Because the 10-inch driver in a sub is only just, well, it's designed to go really low, but probably roll off at about 100, maybe organically, so or maybe a bit higher, 120. So it's it's it kind of a, it's a weird conundrum, isn't it? So it's funny you mentioned the, <laughs> the DW6, because I, I would love a pair now. I'd love to hear them, but not just because that they might offer more bass, but because I don't have to go, well, we'll, we'll probably talk about this in a moment, actually, is that the biggest weakness of the DWX is finding the right stand. Ah, and I, but it's also its greatest strength compared to the DW6, I think. Right. So, we okay, do, do you want to pick up this thread then, Srijan, because I think this is, this is your thing. Okay, so my one complaint, quote-unquote complaint, mm. about... Most zoo speakers, except for the Druid, which is puts the full range driver on the top and it puts the tweeter on the bottom, is that Sean Casey, the boss man at Zoo, he likes a low rider look. So mm. he makes his speakers shorter 
than somebody else would, which puts that full range driver quite low. And since mm -hmm. we are, we just covered the fact that that center section, the wizard cone is basically what other people would call a tweeter. Traditionally, you want the tweeter at ear height, mm -hmm. but most zoo speakers put their wizard cone tweeter that so it fires in my belly button, and that means that the speaker sounds a little darker and sort of more opaque on top than it actually does if I could just raise that bloody full range driver to my ear height as right. high as I sit. But if I have a floor stander, what do I put the floor stander on to be tall enough? Yes. I, there's no stand that I could think of. The stand would be too tall. So what solution would there be? Some telephone books or some, you know, <laughs> some <blocks>. bricks? <laughs> yes. Put it on bricks so, like a car. Yeah. So that's why <laughs> that's why I think having a zoom monitor suddenly enables me as the end user to decide where I want to place a wideband. And the stands that I have are from a UK company called Track Audio. Hmm. I'm not sure that they're still in business. Their website still works. And their uprights come in segments. And the segments are about, I'd say, well, about as long as my hand. Mm -hmm. So I can unscrew segments and I can make the stand taller or shorter. And I managed to put the white banner at exactly ear height. And suddenly that information that the wizard covers is cleaner, is clearer, I, mm. because I'm sitting directly on axis. And the funny thing also is that, you know, you were talking about some F words in your review, and there's one F word that applies to the DWX, and that is it's a flippant speaker. <laughs> because you can you can flip the thing upside yes. down, and you can flip it sideways because you can use this as a center channel. Because again, that little tweeter only works way way up in the harmonics. It doesn't need to sit above the white bander. It can sit to the side. Mm -hmm. So you can use that speaker as a center channel, and you can put it upside down so the tweeter is at the bottom. And that will affect sound stage height, and it will also a little bit affect the feeling of how much mid-range sort of body and weightiness and chunkiness and chewiness you get. Do you mm. want to inject just a little bit more fizz, which gives you a little bit more air, but just a little bit less of that chewiness? Or do you want to change the balance and emphasize the chewiness? And all you need to do is determine whether that tweeter is up or down. And that's the freedom that you don't have with the floor standard. So yes, finding the right stand that also looks good, I think is not that easy. I didn't think that the stand I have looked particularly good. It was too mm. skinny. And the box stand, which would just be a frame, and maybe it's even an angled frame, so it can sit quite low and then it can aim the driver up, that would have to be perfectly sized. It would have to have the exact footprint of the zoo and then some kind of lip at the end so the speaker wouldn't slide off because it's sort of leaning back. Mm. I think that would look fantastic, but I don't know who makes a stand like that. You found a stand that was more or less the right height, but then it had those wooden those wooden inserts that just didn't look right. It, it looks terrible. I mean, it's not because it's not Wharfdale's fault. They're designed to go with the, for the Linton. And right. the, the top plate is almost the perfect size, and it's only at the back that you really notice it's not. But yeah, it looks kind of. I'm not happy with it. I was. I haven't yet pulled the trigger on the L82 JBL. Sorry, I'll say that the right way around. The JBL L82 Classic Stand, which I think is fifty 
no, it's, is it 40 or 50? I can't remember in height, but it, it counts the speaker backwards a bit. Mm -hmm. But I think they're a bit taller than these Wharfdale stands. And I was a bit worried that going taller and tilting back would be too much. But this is what I mean. This is like this, this stands lottery that is, it's a hard nut to crack because depending upon where you live in the world determines what's available to you because stands are heavy, they're bulky, they're expensive to ship. They're not a very exciting purchase. You know, they're just, it's just hard to get excited about buying a new pair of speaker stands. And I did find a pair from Atacama in the UK. Mm -hmm. They're 400 mil in height, but the top plate, I was a bit concerned that it wasn't big enough to cover the 12 inch by 12 inch base of the zoo. So I haven't really found anything that I'm, I'm thinking, well, that's ideal. I'll buy that. And so I'm still on that hunt. I mean, I, I really don't feel like I finished my coverage of, well, not necessarily coverage, my experimentation with this speaker, because I know that you uncovered so much, we'll come back to come to this in a moment, with different placement points. And I want to either get them higher, like you've suggested, to get that, that wizard cone higher. But uh, yeah, I just, I want something that looks better as well than these Wharfdales. So yeah. I, I don't know what to do. So I guess it's a, a two-edged sword. So there's a benefit in that the end user can determine the height of the speaker and mm. uh, the payment to be made is you as the potential owner have to do the work of finding, sourcing your perfect stand. That's going to take a little doing. I mean, I'm hoping that either Sean at Zoo or somebody can sort of recommend a stand and they'll put it on their website. So they're like, if you buy these, this is the stand to get. You don't have to buy it from us or whatever, but this is the one we generally recommend. Um, but even then, that's only going to help people in the USA probably because uh, quite sensibly, Zoo will pick a stand that is available to American customers because that's the, their major market. So I, I don't know, because you need a yeah, 12 inch by 12 inch, that's 30 centimeters, isn't it? 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters top plate, um, which is the base of the Zoo. So maybe a little bit less than that would be okay. I just don't want to spend 250 euros on the JBL stands and find that they don't work because I'd have to buy them from a dealer and I have no return possibilities unless I buy them on the internet, which I, I just don't want to have to return stands just because I don't like them. You know, it just feels weird. If it was Amazon, I wouldn't think twice, but if, if it's a local dealer, I'm like, ah, no, I don't really want to do that to them. So I think the next point we should cover is that actually there are three different grades of the w the dwx it's difficult to say it, isn't it it's yeah, a pain it to say <laughs> yeah and i think both you and i had the the high zoot version yes which i believe you said comes in at about 2500 dollars to pay correct whereas yeah. the no frills base version which looks pretty much the same from all sides other than the back mm -hmm. is 1400 yeah. So what's the difference? The way I understand it, the difference is the quality of the capacitor on the tweeter. Yep. That changes. The internal hookup wiring changes. It becomes Zoo's best Zoo event. Mm -hmm. So that's the wiring that goes from the drivers to the terminal plate. Uh, and the terminal plate at the back adds to the standard five-way binding post pair uh, another locking terminal that is for Zoo's own special connector. The speak-on connector, isn't it? It's a speak-on connector. Yeah. So you need a speaker cable that is 
fitted with a speaker on connected that is from the pro world. It mm-hmm. locks, it, it doesn't come off. And according to Zoo, I think it eliminates a number of uh, solder points. So mm-hmm. it's the even purer connection. Now, I had a pair of Zoo Druid 5, I believe, with that terminal. And I had from Zoo a matching pair of cables. Mm-hmm. And I had the equivalent cable with the standard termination. And hand on heart, I could not really tell the difference. So I would not. I don't think that's a feature to pursue. That's just extra. But another big difference, possibly the biggest difference between the three different grades is that the top grade gets the most factory break-in. Yes. And what does that mean? That means that when the zoo boys leave their industrial park at night, in their back room, they have, I don't know how many speakers cranking at really high SPL. I don't know whether they do music or they do test tones but they do a loudness orgy that I not only, <laughs> I could never get away with. And I live in a freestanding home without any neighbors, but I couldn't stand the SPL. I'm not a loud listener. But if you don't put enough time on these drivers at high SPL, they will never break in, ever. You mm. can have them three years, and if you just play them at dainty background levels, they will never fully break in. So sort of paying a little bit extra and having the factory do that for you I don't know how many hours, but I think it's like it's six days or it's two weeks nonstop, whatever it is, it's worth it. Because I I had early zoos where they did not do the factory break-in. And I know this just it just takes a long time. And it's I would recommend if you can stomach the difference, not only do you get a better tweeter part, but possibly more importantly, you get a fully cooked speaker that you take it out of the box, you put in one day just for the voice calls to warm up from transit and you're home free. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of things to say about this in that there are people out there who just believe that burning is complete bullshit. But having been in the zoo factory about eight years ago and seeing the the big metal shelves upon which the drivers are, are they, they sit on there and they're connected to whatever master unit is playing the test tones and there's maybe 30 or 40 drivers on each shelf. So when I made my DWX video the weekend before last, when I was looking for a clip of Sean, because I wanted to show him, I thought, I know, I'll pull the clip where he's moving that shelf of uh, drivers being burnt in. So that if any naysayers come into the comment section and go, no, no, they're being burnt in, and you can see it at this point in the video. So why would they waste their time, electricity, effort, because it must be a real hassle to do all of that if it doesn't have any real benefit. And it does have real benefit because I know this, because when I took my Soul 6 to Portugal, I really felt that after about two or three weeks of living there, they really started to open up a little bit more because I was I was playing them much louder than I'd ever played them here because I got a bigger room, bigger acoustically. And I was also kind of just excited about being a new house. So I was cranking it to see whether my neighbors would object and nobody did. And so, so I could play a lot louder. And so I think, I suspect that I hadn't properly run them in until that point. Mm-hmm. And I'd had, you know, had, I'd used them on and off here, but I don't tend to play too loud here because I just don't really enjoy it crazy loud. Um, so maybe I just didn't put enough sort of energy into them. I don't know, but it, it's very much a, a real thing with, zoo drivers they they do need some burning yes 
And uh, this is the perfect point to throw in that they refer to their driver as a hard-hung design. And when one looks at it, where mm. the usual driver has that sort of rubber surround, Zoo's driver coming out of the pro arena field, it has like a pleated, uh, impregnated uh, paper suspension. Yes. And when you push on that driver, you realize that it takes more force to push that driver than it takes a driver that has like a little foam suspension. And what that also means in practice that you can sit very close to the speaker and play uncomfortably loud, and you will rarely, if ever, see it physically move. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of that little five and a quarter inch two-way, you know, a 10,000 euro <laughs> deluxe monitor that actually will play bloody low, but it, it looks like it's it looks like it's losing its lunch. Like those little drivers <laughs> are just about to jump out of their hoops. I mean, yes. you can see them. Yes. You do the same thing with Zoo. And if your ears didn't tell you otherwise, you wouldn't think they are playing because you don't see anything move at all. And that brings me to another point that doubles back on the efficiency and the fact that these don't need a lot of power. But that does not mean that A, they can't take a lot of power. Right. And B, that they don't appreciate it. Because I came from a 25-watt amplifier on my desktop, mm. where I had them sitting left and right on their own stands. I went upstairs to my smallest system, where I had a 60-watt amplifier, 60-watt mm. per channel into 8 ohms. And then I went downstairs into my big system, and I put them on 250-watt monoblocks. Mm -hmm. Bigger room. And everything got bigger. Well, yes. you'd, think, you'd think that obviously because there's more room, I can put them further away. There's more room between the speaker's back and the front wall, so there's a deeper stage. Uh, but it was more than just that. The, the speaker filled out on the bottom. I, didn't, I wouldn't say it went lower, but it got firmer. And the top end became more informative. And that's something I think we're, we're going to have to spend some time on discussing because there's mm -hmm. something different about this speaker than than others. Mm. But so the speaker will handle and will be happy with low power amplifier, but unlike some high efficiency white banders, like the archetype would be a louder, mm. and then you had the Voxity from Berlin, mm -hmm. and then you had their sort of Polish competitors at Cube Audio, and then in India you have Rhythm, and all of those drivers are high efficiency. They are usually about eight inch in diameter. They can go up to a hundred dB sensitivity, but most of most, if not all of them, distinctly prefer tubes. If you put on my two hundred and fifty watt Class AB solid state monoblocks that have no coupling capacitors and have bandwidths out to two point five megahertz, on those speakers they will sound wrong, they will mm. sound aggressive, they will sound lean, they will sound thin. And on top of that, they will make the bass roll off prematurely because they are actually over damping the driver. Because mm -hmm. those drivers are very well self-damped. They're light drivers with really, really big magnets. They don't need a whole lot of amplifier damping. The zoos are different. They don't need power, <clears throat> but they appreciate it and they can uh handle it. So you can run like a class D, 
I think you have a peach tree. What is it called? The the GAN something or other? I've got a GAN 400 here and a GAN 1 in, in Lisbon. So, yeah, I mean, these are these are sort of fairly beefy class D amplifiers. I actually haven't tried the GANs. I have tried the Hegel H590, which is 300 watts of class AB power. 300 is, is big numbers. Today, I've got it hooked up to the Molar Molar Cooler, which is another class D. Sounds fantastic. Because, yeah. again, this is another form of sort of cognitive dissonance. You would not think that a driver that's made of paper that has a whizzer on it would sound good with a class D amplifier, but it absolutely does. And I think it's because I don't, you know, from listening to you talk and you've said the pro word twice and having spoken to Sean on and off throughout the years, I don't think he comes from that sort of louder, I don't know, eclipse heritage. Well, maybe he's a little bit inspired by that, but I think a lot of what he draws on is just, sensible pro audio heritage like how speakers were made for big cinema systems or pas maybe back in the 50s 60s and 70s so i think that's why we've got a speak on connector optionally on the back and why there's a big chunky face plug you know and why the drivers are made at the eminence factory i mean that's a i mean they are pro audio suppliers right but i've got to be very clear because i know that sean goes at pains to kind of explain this and it often misses whenever he mentions eminence, is that it's not an off-the-shelf eminence driver. No, it's Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's like they Zoo have designed it and they've gone to eminence and go, Can you make us this, please? And they go, Sure, we'll make you that. How many do you want? And they've been, I think, using, as you say, the same one for the last almost 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just this this pro pro-leaning heritage that sort of feeds into this speaker, which sets it apart from the cube, the louder, which I think do come from, I don't know what the heritage, what, what, would, what would you call that heritage where you've got louder, Fostex, you know, those single driver speakers that I think everybody goes through a phase of them. I know I did. Um, yeah, but I, that is cer- certainly like boutique audiophile. And it's uh, the louder speakers, they have, they had such a, a tight voice coil gap that some of the drivers would actually miss a line in transit. So they were perfectly fine at the factory and the customer mm. gets them with six days worth of UPS in between. And suddenly there's a problem with the voice call. It's a very, very fussy design. Mm-hmm. And and Sean, he wouldn't waste his time with fussy audiophile drivers. No. He wants something that is super robust. And one thing that distinguishes pro drivers is that they're used on stage where SBL get high. Yes. And they're in use nonstop, hours on end, days on end, weeks on end. And if a driver, if a driver dies on stage, I mean that's a big deal. You yeah. know, you have you have <laughs> thousands of tickets sold. You have an arena full of, you know, fans that have been waiting for the band to come to town, and suddenly your stage equipment just blows up. It's it's not mm. possible. No. And Sean once confided to me that some of the drivers he's tested that a lot of audiophiles would recognize the names of, like really high suit, expensive boutique drivers. And he said, we just we just shredded them. They just blew up. Hmm. You know, we used them at whatever, 105 dB, and after 10 minutes, sorry, the driver just caved in. <laughs> and he's not advocating that we listen that loud, but I think where he comes from, he wants to know that you can do it. And then he will also tell you that since the driver has that much headroom, of indestructibility built in that actually also benefits it at low volume listening. 
because it will distort less. The driver is just more robust. Did you notice on the website they put life expectancy 100 years on this speaker? No, I hadn't seen that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I think that speaks to everything that you just you've just said. Really, that you know the intent here is to make a an indestructible speaker that will last you an absolute lifetime. I know many of us don't have a speaker for more than like three or four years, and certainly in our job, we're churning them all the time. So, but some people do. Some people kind of buy speakers and they just live with them their entire life. So, the, it really is a life a speaker if you like its sound. You know, it's it's. it's I think I think it would be a. I won't say it would never fail you, but I'd be, I'd be amazed if like a driver failed or a, even the capacitor. Maybe that would be the first thing to go. The capacitor on the um, on the the super tweeter, because they don't. Oh, destroy, right. You know, I mean, that's going to need replacing after about thirty years, I would think. So I guess now we get to the meat of the review, which is talking about the sound. Mm -hmm. And I think that most uh, listeners can relate to the assumption that you'll make looking at this speaker. It's a paper driver. It's a 10-inch diameter. We've already covered that it may not go as low as you may think, mm. but you will definitely think that, okay, I'm going to get good dynamics because I have a lot of cone area. This driver applies a lot more cone surface to the job than like a six and a half inch or five and a quarter inch two-way standard monitor. Mm -hmm. So you expect that. Then if you apply common sense, you said, okay, as I go higher up in frequency, where the driver has to move a lot faster, a smaller driver should be should be more transparent. It has less mass to move. And here I'm moving 10 inches paper cone driver that has a pretty good weight, more weight than a little driver. And I'm taking <clears throat> it all the way out to 12 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. So something ought to give. And what ought to give is a certain sense of sort of insight or transparency or clarity or crispness. And so then common sense would say, okay, so if I add all of this together, I would probably think that the speaker should sound warm. And maybe I would add that it sounds robust. And maybe I add that it sounds chunky. And I would say yes to chunky. And I would say yes to robust. And when we come to warms, I would say, Yes, but mm -hmm. because there's different types of warmth. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to be very specific as to what applies and what does not apply. And I'm going to cheat now. And I'm going to have a little cheat sheet here. I'm going to actually read off it because I wanted to be specific about the different types of warmth and which ones apply and which ones don't. So, for example, there's warmth that comes from a heavy dose of second harmonic distortion such as we might expect from affordable, no-feedback triode amps. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of that total harmonic distortion that is heavy on the second harmonic, which is like the first octave. It's, uh, it's like when you have a singer that sounds lean and you add a backup singer that sings either an octave above or below. It will make the solo singer sound richer. Mm -hmm. And that's what a thick layer of harmonic distortion does. Mm -hmm. It makes the sound thicker. And very often we call that warmth. That does not apply to the zoo. There's warmth from a bottom-up tonal balance. So where a speaker's tonal balance is sort of base up. It's not treble down, but it's base up. That does not really apply to the zoo either, because it is good to about 45 hertz, but it's not good to 20. That's not the kind of warmth that is that applies. There's another kind of warmth that is a slight blurriness. 
And that can come from phase shift in crossovers. And it can, it can come from like an impulse response of like a three or four way multi-way speaker that has the different drivers not rise and fall at once, but mm -hmm. they're staggered in time. And if listeners to this podcast have ever seen a stereophile measurement of a step or an impulse response, mm -hmm. <clears throat> ideally it should go up and it should go down and it should do that in the least amount of time possible. But very often on a three or four way, you see multiple rises and you see multiple dips. And sometimes one driver will rise and the other one will actually go down first. That's a confused time response. And that introduces a certain amount of sort of fuzziness or blurriness. Mm. Very subtle, but that too is a kind of warmth. And that too does not apply to the zoo. There's another kind of warmth that comes from coupling capacitors, especially on amplifiers. And it comes from output transformers, which we usually have in tube amplifiers. But for example, Macintosh uses outerformers on the outputs of transistor amplifiers, mm -hmm. trying to clone a, a quote-unquote sort of tube reminiscent sound from transistors. That's a different kind of warmth. And again, I don't really think that quite applies to the zoo. There is a kind of warmth that comes from a curtailed treble, where the high frequencies are sort of hooded and opaque. Mm -hmm. and, the, and that means that the whole tonal center of the speaker moves down. The center of gravity is not in the middle. It's slightly below the middle. Yes. I think a little bit of that applies to the zoo. And uh, I think it comes from the fact that we are using a 10-inch driver that goes well above the presence region, which is plus minus 3 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. And we are applying more. It's a heavier driver, and we are applying much more surface area. So in that range, it is not quite as sort of detailed or precise or articulate as maybe a five and a quarter inch driver. But because that driver does not have a crossover on it, it doesn't suffer that other kind of sort of fuzzier crossover induced warmth. And because it's direct coupled to our amplifier, it has excellent timing. So it's really snappy. Yes which means that the warmth that it has, it comes from the fact that the presence region is not forward, it's not aggressive, it's not turned up, but at the same time, the timing's really accurate. And that super tweeter, that little fuzz, that fizziness, the airiness that it gives on the travel, that is not turned down either. So it's not that that tweeter sounds hooded on top. It's just that in the area where critical female high vocals can get a little nervy, mm. they can get a little aggressive, and where sibilance, recorded sibilance, can get a little annoying, that's the area where this speaker is just slightly mellow and gentle. And I call it sort of like a folks voicing. It's like a Volkswagen that was made for the everyman, not for, for the-, the people. Yeah. yeah. It was made, made for the people, not for yeah. the Porsche millionaire. And I think <laughs> this is sort of like the equivalent of voicing. It's made for, the average listener that wants to listen to all sorts of music at all kinds of levels and doesn't want to get annoyed. But, and this is what surprised me, is that if like me, you're coming from a conservatory training, which means that you have played and listened to a lot of classical music, which tends to be recorded acoustically. You don't have any amplifiers in there. You don't have any microphones in there. It's just, it's just acoustic. That the zoos usually, the older style zoos, 
they were not that ideal for that kind of music. Mm. But then suddenly I felt they lacked transparency and that, you know, when you have violence and you want to hear the, 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 the rosin of the string of the horsehair going across the string, you want to hear all the overtones. I always felt, okay, that's where the zoo is lacking a little bit. Well, lo and behold, I don't know what they have changed to their driver technology because they have evolved it since mm -hmm. 2005. And they put some kind of nano magic on there, some kind of nano treatments that they put on the cone and all mm -hmm. kinds of other weird and wacky stuff that they don't really talk about. Well, whatever they have done, I think this generation of zoo has more transparency than I expected for classical music. Hmm. So even though it's still not a super tweaked, let's say, burst and speaker or what's the other Danish brand that I really like, very expensive. Rado? Is it Rado? Yeah, or? it's not a Rado. Right. But it's also not it's also not a speaker that I that I would ever call low resolution. In fact, I found it surprisingly high resolution. It's just mm. cleverly voiced that the area that tends to be triggered the easiest to become annoying, that area is it's a little gentle. And so that's why I would say, okay, the zoo is high resolution, but at the same time, it has really chunky tone. It has mm -hmm. really, really good dynamics. And particularly in the upper bass, which is where the kick drum rules, mm. and what I call sort of the engine room of the music, where all the beat makers, the noise makers, the, the, the drums, and even some electric bass where that lives, that is really, really strong. Which is why the fact that the bottommost octave between 20 and 40 hertz, the fact that that is mostly missing, it doesn't really register because everything above it is sort of extra good. I think saying it's extra good rather than it's extra, you know, an extra portion is served is important here because this is not a speaker with sort of a, a BBC bass hump to try and compensate or try and trick you into thinking that it goes lower than it does. As many stand mount uh, speaker designers build in, you know, they kind of, and that's the love another, handles. The love handles. That's another version of warmth. Yeah. You know, where they put it into, I don't know, whatever. Th there isn't any evidence of that in this speaker. It seems very linear as it sort of drops down into the, into the lowest frequencies. Um, as for the presence region, I mean, I came, <laughs> the speakers that I had in before this are the Bowers and Wilkins 705 S3 with the tweeter <laughs> on top, right? Well, now, for me, that is the, the most present sounding loudspeaker I've ever heard. So I went from ultra presence region to the zoos. And it's amazing. Like, I have a test track for this, or one that I kind of go to every now and again. And it is. It's like a hurricane by Neil Young and Crazy Horse, but not the live Russ version. It's a studio version that is on, I think it's on American Stars and Bars, but I could be wrong. But it's just come out again on Chrome Dreams. It's just finally been released today because I played it this morning. And that has a very searing guitar sound. And it's, it's, it's a bit thin sometimes. And it's very nervy on the, on the Bowers. And I know that because I want to turn it down as soon as that guitar kicks in because it comes straight in. No messing, no intro, just like this guitar comes straight in. So I don't feel that way when I have it playing on the zoo. I don't feel the need to kind of reach for the volume control. And as for introducing a little bit more pep into that presence region, I found that going from an audio lab 60 water to the Hegel 300 water and then to this Mola Mola, which is even more 
I guess it's more of a transparent kind of amp, you know, top to bottom, but it has a little bit more presence, region, urgency than the Hegel. I would say the Hegel is a little bit warm in, in that respect. If we're going to talk about presence, region, or, or maybe even the roll-off in the top, I'm not saying it's kind of super rolled-off or anything like that, but there are subtle differences. So I think, for me, the Mola Mola is the, be the best fit for these speakers, given that we've established that there is... If there is a weakness, it is, you know, a lack of, I don't want to even say a lack because it makes it sound like there's a hole. It's not. It's just, it's, not. it's just, maybe it's just a, it's, it's more back foot with its, its presence region push. You know, it's a little bit, it's a bit shy. That's all, you know, you just, just a smidge, you know, like a kid that stands in the doorway, doesn't come walking into the room when there's guests around, you know, it's like that kind of thing. Yeah. So. I, I, for the music that I listen to that's not electronic, like a lot of punk, indie, new wave, this is the perfect speaker because a lot of that stuff can get very nervy after a couple of hours because of all the guitar lines that sit in that, I don't know, what, what, one, two, three K region. They can, they call maybe the overtones in those guitars. I don't know. They can get really annoying. I think they can be annoying for most people. So I can listen to, that kind of music on these speakers all day, a bit like the headphones that I'm wearing, the 99 classics from Meze. Same kind of thing. Very exactly. similar. In fact, there's a strong parallel, which I'm sure we'll get to eventually between Meze headphones and Zoo speakers. Um, so when you say people's voicing, what I, I would call that, <laughs> I don't know, normal music friendly. You know, if you listen to some brash pop music or it's been mastered a bit too hot, it would show up on the Bowers right in that presence region. You're like, oh, I'll turn this down. It's annoying. So I guess it depends on how much sort of transparency you want there and whether you're a classical listener and how much sort of normal pop, rock, indie, nothing to do with electronic. I mean, I would say that the Bowers are possibly, apart from in the bass, possibly better for electronic music because they are more forceful in that presence region, which can be really exciting. You know, it has to be handled well with the right amplifier. I'll get to that. I haven't reviewed them yet, but, um, but the, the, the zoo don't have that problem. So like you talk about the radio and the Borison, you know, having that kind of ultra clean, I think it's ultra clean sound that you're kind of talking about. I, I don't love that sometimes. I mean, yeah. I think it just means you have to put in a lot of extra work with your electronics. And then you also have to dance around certain kind of music choices. You know what I mean? Like you kind yeah. of, you steer what you play towards the speaker's strengths. I'm sure that happens to all of us over time with, 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 with whatever we're playing. It's maybe a, it's a subconscious thing. I, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I haven't worked that out yet. There's another thing that, and I believe actually this is a first for Zoo, right? To have a port. Because uh, usually, yes. usually what Zoo have done and I think this may be a little bit contentious because they call it Grivy loading. And mm -hmm. apparently Ron Grivy was a motorcycle, not only a rider, but he actually also tuned and tweaked motorcycles. And there's mm -hmm. something he did to a motorcycle exhaust, which mm -hmm. has to do with airflow that made that particular motorcycle accelerate harder. Mm -hmm. And since Zoo, I mean, since Sean at Zoo is also an avid motorcycle rider and rode with uh, Ron Grivy, he applied the same sort of airflow principle to what happens inside the speaker box. Mm -hmm. And um, in the original 
drew it, it looked like an inverted horn. In other words, he had a foam pyramid in there. Yes. The point of the pyramid was at the face, the top of the speaker. The base was glued to the bottom plate, which means that the air, there was more air on top of the speaker. And then as the pyramid took up more and more space, there was less air towards the bottom of the speaker. And there were holes at the bottom. So there was sort of a pressure rejection of the air. And at the bottom, it had holes, but the holes didn't have any port tube attached. They were just holes. There were slits. Were they slits? Slits. Yeah. Yeah. He he called them finger ports. Okay. And he was always very adamant. He said, it is not a port. And I always took that as gospel. And Mm. then Stereophile reviewed a version of a Druid, and John Atkinson measured it on the bench. And it measured exactly like a ported speaker, which means it had that what we call the saddle response, which is Mm -hmm. two peaks and one trough in the middle. And one of the peaks is usually centered on the tuning frequency of the port. Mm -hmm. So even though it was no port, because there's no port tube, but the speaker still behaved, electrically, it looked like a ported speaker. Well, long story short, now this this model, the the DWX, It's the first two I've ever seen that has a port. And not only does it have a port, but it's a front-firing port. Hmm. And I think this port, no, I should say it this way, I assume that Sean was very surprised how well the port works. Because for some reason, he never pursued a port in the beginning. He had this other unique wrinkle called gravy loading. For hmm. some reason, Sean wasn't happy mating his driver to a port. And I think maybe the gravy loading takes more internal sort of room to implement than this little cabinet. Well, it's not that little, but it's as small as one right now. This this monitor speaker could contain, and he didn't want it to be sealed because then he would have lost about an octave's worth of bandwidth. Yeah. If this was a sealed speaker with that driver and that cabinet size, it probably would only be good to about seven-ish, somewhere between 65, 70 hertz. Mm-hmm. He wanted it to be to go lower, and that meant a port. And I think the port works really, really well. In fact, I predict that future models of zoos might see more ports applied. I yeah, think that he might have surprised himself that the conventional port with his driver works a lot better than he maybe has ever given it credit for. And because of the front ported design, the speaker does work pretty well close to the front wall. It does mm-hmm. not need as much sort of breathing room as a rear port would. And even though I had it in the near field on my desktop and I played it at sort of happy hour levels just to see what it could do, I never heard any what we call sort of port shuffling, like any kind of sort of breathing noise or no. airflow noise coming out. And it's a pretty good-sized port. I mean, I couldn't put my fist in there. But maybe I could put, you know, four fingers in there. It is a pretty good diameter. It's. It, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a large port. I I've never heard anything come out of it. But then I I don't play at the levels that might cause that to happen. But I guess for I I don't know about the mechanics of this. Do you have to play much louder to generate chuffing noises from the port? I, I don't know. But do you remember on the the driver loading? Um, the slits on the bottom of the speaker that were very common well, maybe mm-hmm. 10 years ago with speakers, you could adjust the bass response by lifting this, by 
adjusting the amount of space between the bottom of the speaker and the floor using the, the spikes because they came with extra tall spikes right. and you could lean it backwards and forwards accordingly so you could adjust it that way and i think the soul six still worked that way mm -hmm. but i remember having a pair of was it a pair of soul in sydney in 2015 and i really struggled to get the the, the amount of bass satisfaction that i really wanted from that speaker which i didn't have that issue when i had a pair of omen Oh God, man, that must have been like 2011, something like that, which are, were a much more sort of bouncier, fun kind of bass producing speaker. And I think, I mean, I've not heard the DW6, the floor standard, so I don't know what they do. But this, this DWX is more like how I remember the Omen and less like the, the Soul that I had for a while. It's just, it's a, it's a more... I guess more dynamically expressive in the low end. It's just a, a bouncier sound. And yeah, I'm glad that Sean didn't put the port on the back, but it wouldn't really affect me too much because I always tend to find the sweet spot in my room is, you know, about uh, a meter and a half from the front wall. But I realize that I, have you ever, I've got to say this for John, cause this has been, this has been, it's been kind of like <laughs> bubbling away inside me for weeks. Right. I see a lot of people posting photographs of their hi-fi systems in their rooms online. And I'm always amazed at the, the number of compromised setups. You know, like where the speakers are right next to sidewalls, everything's really jammed in really close. Or, you know, like, I guess everyday furniture gets in the way because there are living spaces as well. So I see more compromised listening spaces online than I do sort of perfect or more ideal setups for loudspeakers. And I think, you know, having the port on the front would really help a lot of people. I, I used to have friends in Australia who would complain. I'm not, I don't want to be throwing wives or significant others under the bus, but they would complain that their significant other would hate it when they'd pull the speaker out into the room to listen you know, and would be almost forced to push them back against the front wall when they were done, right? And I used to look at that and go, what a pain in the ass. I never, ever want to have to live like that because it's just, why? I, I just want to, be able to turn it on and push play. I don't want to have to think about moving it out. So I could, if I was forced to, I could push these against the, the front wall or much closer and leave them there. And they would still sound just as good. Mm -hmm. And And I say all of this because I realize that whilst not everybody wants to admit that they live in a compromised situation with their hi-fi system, I would say that probably at least 75% of people do. They have to because very few people have dedicated listening rooms or can you know do the things that you or I do and have this hi-fi gear everywhere or treatments or whatever. So it really is, again, it's, it's a, a people's design in that respect, isn't it? I know they're not the first company to put a port on the front of the speaker. Of course, I know that. But they are possibly one of the few companies to put a port on the front of a speaker with a 10-inch driver right in the middle of it, right? I don't know of many speakers like that. I mean, I know that they've sort of coming back into fashion, but I don't, I haven't seen a, um, is it Vestlid? There's a company called Vestlid that make these kind yeah. of um, large format, I know Sean calls them medium format, large format stand mounts and JBL, their ports are on the front as well, the L100 Classic. Uh, Magnavox, ports on the front, I believe. So it's maybe Sean's just sort of following trends here. I don't know. I don't, that's possibly unlikely. I haven't spoken to him in, in a good few years, actually, so I don't know. So, um, yeah, I maybe. actually also think that it looks good. 
because it makes the speaker look um, symmetrical. You have the tweeter on the top, right. and you have the port at the bottom, and the tweeter um, waveguide diameter is not that dissimilar from the port. Yeah, the port's and bigger. And then if yeah. you flip it upside down, it still looks right. It doesn't look like that it's the wrong way up. So I have mine upside down because right. that's how I like the sound of them. <laughs> and you're right, if the port wasn't there, it would look absurd. I mean, I know people People still hammering away in my comment section going, your speakers are upside down. I'm going, yeah, I know. I explained why in the video, but you didn't watch all of it yet. So what's why? <laughs> anyway, that's another frustration. But yes, I think they look less awkward with the port adding a bit of symmetry to the front panel. So yeah, would I turn them up? Thing is, I probably wouldn't turn them upside down because I wouldn't want to look at a speaker that looked odd without a, that port on the front. Because aesthetics yeah. do matter. They you know, do. They do. So anyway, yeah. We've hammered the port. Srijan, we should move on. <laughs> yeah, we should move on. <laughs> I would think a really, really big point. Okay, before I get there, I wanna I wanna backtrack mm -hmm. to the classical thing, which is to say that I was surprised that I could listen to this speaker on classical music, be it chamber music or be it big orchestral. And even though I heard that it didn't have quite the same transparency as I'm used to with my setup, mm. I could happily listen to classical. In other words, if, I, if this was my main speaker, I would not stop listening to classical music because this speaker somehow forced me to look into other areas of my library. Mm. And so, I think you ended your review in saying that this was a fun speaker, but it also was a finesse speaker. Yes. And I think that's a really, really key point. This zoo remains a fun speaker, and it remains feisty, uh, and maybe feisty. a little funky. Feisty is a better word, is, actually, yeah, yeah. But it is also surprisingly finessed. Mm -hmm. And I think that might very well be an evolution in in Sean's mm, career as a speaker, designer, voicer. I mean, mm. he's been at this now for you know, a good 20 years. Mm -hmm. He's learned a lot of things. And I think that this speaker is, is unique in my zoo experience in that it offers more refinement than I suspected without giving up on any of the sort of signature zoo sound. And it does it for what I consider to be a really high value, particularly since it's made in the US. I think it's 95% made in the US. And we already mm -hmm. covered the fact that it has a machined aluminum trim, trim ring around the big driver. It has a machined lens guide or waveguide on the tweeter. Mm -hmm. It has the big face plug, also yep. machined out of aluminum. In the back, it has an aluminum face plate. And as per a press release that made the rounds maybe about a month ago, on any Zoom model, you can now get all the metal hardware in black anodized, if that's what you prefer. So you I didn't have know that. Okay, right. Yeah, you can have the complete blackout look. Mm. The cabinet is not MDF, but it's that Okume plywood. I think Okume is some kind of African okay. hardwood that they use for, for plywood manufacture. The speaker was substantial. I mean, it's heavier than I expected. Yes. It's a substantial build. I think, especially for fourteen hundred dollars a pair, you and I have not heard the base version. But apart from the break-in and the uh, hookup wiring and the different capacitor, capacitor it's yeah. exactly the same speaker. Hmm. For fourteen hundred dollars a pair, 
I think this is a real high value proposition. Well, I think you've really nailed it in, in reminding me again, which is why I opened my video with this. This speaker is made in the USA. And I, I know it, it's direct sold, so I guess they can afford to do it that way because if it wasn't direct sold, maybe it would go out for three grand. I don't know, something like that, you know, two and a half, maybe three. So, but I see a lot of pushback in my YouTube comments about made in China. We've discussed this before, you and I, both privately, and I think we spoke about it on, on a on a podcast in the past. So there's absolutely there's no there's no daylight for those kinds of complainers to kind of walk in and go, we're made in China. Because it isn't. It's made in the USA. I think if anybody wants to grumble, it's because they live in Poland and they have to ship out a pair. I've seen a couple of people literally say, Sean needs to sort out the fact that I have to pay import duty and shipping costs of 400 euros. And I'm, I just think, no, Sean does not have to sort that out. That's just the realities of shipping a, a 19 kilo speaker two times across the Atlantic. And then the, I mean, this, he was a Portuguese guy. So he was talking about VAT of 23%. Well, that's a government decision, just as it is 19% in Germany. So again, not the responsibility of Sean, right? And it's the same, same with all this kind of extraneous stuff. Yeah, if you live outside the USA, it's a more expensive loudspeaker. And so it probably takes a bit of the shine off um, the value proposition that you've been just, just now so enthusiastic about. And I would absolutely join you in. I think if you are living in Europe, I think maybe it's best to buy the Supreme, the tricked out version. And, and pay the extra because if you don't like it and you want to resell it, it'll be easier to sell and you won't take as much of a haircut, I don't think. Um, I, I too was surprised by the weight. It's, yeah, they're, they're pretty substantial. You can't see anywhere that they've cheaped out. I can't, look no. at, I can't look at this and go, oh, they cheaped out there or they saved money there. Not at all. And again, maybe this is the benefit of making it all in-house and selling from your factory. But as you and I have said many times before, that's a very strong future for one particular branch of hi-fi, especially at the lower end of the market with speakers. I mean, Bookart are doing it, shit do it with electronics, and they are tremendously successful with this model. And no, you don't get the dealer support. And obviously, if you live in, I don't know, I'll just pick a country, um, Hungary, it might be tricky to get a pair of these, but it's not for everybody everywhere all around the world. If you want that, then you're going to have to buy a pair of careful Bowers or something like that. So I guess the regional restrictions do come into play a little bit when you start to look at, you know, how much import duty you're going to pay and shipping costs and things like that. But this is not, that's not a Sean problem or a zoo problem. That's, that's a you problem. <laughs> I, know you, I guess you have to solve that or work, work out how you're going to deal with that. And here's another point that sort of flows into that, hmm. which is, how happy Zoo are to entertain custom requests for finish. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we look at the website for this model, I believe that there is three or four standard colors. Then there is the, the I got the teal, you got the red. There is a couple of other standard sort of colors that are like the next tier up. And then there is a complete custom tier where they'll do anything you want. It will take a little bit longer, but you can literally send in a, a color swatch sample. Mm -hmm. I've done that in the past. And they're happy to do your, uh, you know, I used to like the uh, the ivory 
white that the original Mercedes-Benz taxis in Germany were painted at. It's sort oh, of yeah. like an ivory yeah. bone color. Yeah. And Sean found uh, the code for that particular Mercedes-Benz color, and I got a pair of Zoo Druids in exactly that color. They're perfectly mm. happy to do it. Now, there's not that many speaker manufacturers that offer that at a base model that starts out at $1,400. And yes, by the time you get your custom paint, there will be more. Hmm. But mostly what you'll have is, uh, you know, you might have a black and a white and a wood veneer. And end of story, that's it. With Zoo, you have many, many more options. And I think that's another selling proposition when, as you said before, especially loudspeakers, uh, musical furniture. Mm -hmm. You look at these things more than you ever listen to them. You see them just on the walk to the kitchen. Mm. You just walk past. If you don't like what they look like, why would you want to own them? Yeah. And the fact that you can customize the appearance to fit your sense of decor and whatever color scheme you have going in your in your house, I think that's another tremendous asset over being stuck to just black and white or just one oak finish in like a vinyl wrap, mm. you know, plastic which is quite common at $1,400 a pair. Yes, yeah. I didn't know they weren't MDF, actually. I had, I, I knew they, well, rather, I, I suspected they might not be, but I didn't know what they were in their place. So if, if it's, you're saying it's Okame wood, maybe they're using I believe that. that's what it is. That's, so that, that, well, that's the same as the Soul 6. Yeah. Ah, okay. And that makes, I think that what they have done is that, hmm. that Soul 6 has a slightly pyramidal shape, Yes. It's not like a steep pyramid, but it's like it's like pyramid was uh, the, the top chopped off. Mm -hmm. This speaker that we're talking about today is just a box. Yes. You know, with like rectangle, I mean, parallel walls. So it's probably a lot easier to build and probably a, a lot faster to put together. So I think that's how they have managed to shave up production costs to bring this in at a $1,400 price point for the pair. Mm without anyone looking at it feeling that they've cheaped out anywhere. You still got all the metal bits. You still got superior, very, very robust pro audio drivers. It's a proven recipe that goes back to 2004, whenever Zoo started out, 2003. Yeah, I think it's terrific. I mean, I emailed Zoo as soon as the day these were announced. and went, I'd like to buy a pair, please. Just no messing, because I'd, I had such a good experience with the Soul 6. And even though they're, you know, on the other side of Europe right now, and I only get to them once, well, you know, for a couple of months a year. I thought, I can't not have some zoos in Berlin. This is perfect. I'll, I'll, I'll try the stand mount because I was, I think I'd never gone for the, the floor stander because I was worried that they might produce too much bass and I had no way of controlling it in this room because this is a smaller room. So I thought this will be the perfect fit. And it really is. So the fact it doesn't go down into the 30s is good for me because I have a 35 hertz mode in this room. So any speaker that does go that low, then I have to I have to deal with it, you know, or not. I have to just, just listen past it. So I don't have that triggering going on here, but still get good bass satisfaction. I don't feel that I need to add a subwoofer most of the time. It's also an important thing because, as you know, I've sort of turned the corner with subs in the last couple of years because before I used to be like, oh, I'm not going to bother with that. But since um, – actually, one of my patients was asking me about this, and I was saying, like, since – the advent of these really small subs, like from KEF, SVS, uh, I think Velodyne now make one. Mm -hmm. I think Dynaudio make one that's kind of small. They've now become apartment friendly. So as long as your floor and your neighbors below you are kind of sub friendly, then, you know, that's that's become a thing. But I, I don't feel the need to go and get my KC62 from upstairs and plug it into these. And in fact, 
I would worry that most subs would not be as snappy as these yeah. speakers, you know, would not be able to keep up and it would sound a bit sluggish. So I know we haven't spoken about it yet, but I think trying to find a sub for these speakers would be a bit of a pain if you wanted to sort of maintain that lickety split dynamics. And I don't know, maybe you'd have to go with the Zoo sub, but I think I believe that's quite expensive. So I don't know what, again, what Sean would recommend beyond his own. Yeah, I, I have don't to ask know either. Him. Yeah. I mean, have you tried your Dyn Audio sub with these at all, Trajan, or no? Yeah, I have. I, I have tried you... it with the Dyn Audio sub. I've mm. tried it with the big sub downstairs using an active high pass mm -hmm. rather than just letting the zoo run wide open. And the yeah. high pass, I've set it at 80 hertz because that's how I had set it. Works terrifically. Okay. That works very well. And, and the, 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 uh, the, the Dyne Audio is a force cancelling dual nine and a half inch sub. So each driver is facing its own sealed chamber. Mm -hmm. And since they're moving opposite direction, it keeps the cabinet really quiet. Mm. That worked terrific. Okay. And again, nine and a half inch driver in the sub, 10 inch driver in the zoo, except the sub, and it's of course actively amplified and this DSP compensated. It'll go down to 25 hertz with a smaller driver, whereas mm. the zoo's bigger driver can't go that low. But never mind, it works really, really well. Did you have to but move? I, I, do, I do think that if you do a sub, it would have to be sealed. Do not go for a ported sub. Okay. Because that's going to give you more portly, ponderous, slightly laid, bloomy, woolly Sluggish. bay, yes. <laughs> which is the complete opposite to the zoo. Right. It, or get yourself a, a dipole sub. Okay. But they have to be big because they suffer out of phase cancellation, which is why they don't involve the room as much, mm. but they need a bigger cone surface to make up for it. Is that what you have downstairs, a dipole sub? Uh, yes, it's a variation on a dipole okay. sub. It's called a ripole. It's it's a cardioid sub. Right. Okay. But it has dual 15-inch driver, so that's a big thing. Okay, that's, I think that's a bit esoteric for my taste. But, um, but the and I have, the big, I have the big zoo sub. I have the, uh, what have is it that? called? The, yeah, the, what is it? Is it the is Dominion? It? No, is it, uh, what is it called? Undertone? Is it called the Undertone? No. No, that's a small version. I got okay. the big one. It's ah. twice as big. It's like man tall. It's like is, more than a meter tall. It's like a small table, isn't it? Like a, like no, a, it's like a plant stand. Oh, okay. It's like, it's like about a meter tall, but it's only like <laughs> one <laughs> foot in one foot square footprint. Right. Okay. Because it's got one 10 inch down firing driver. Right. But that works really well too. But that's a big thing to look at, you know. Yeah, I have it in the corner, so it's like behind the television. I have a, a plant on top. Okay. So you don't even see that it's a subwoofer, and it's painted ivory, ivory white, so it uh, sort of disappears uh, against the wall. That's possibly why I didn't think you still had it, because I think, oh, there's a plant stand in the corner. Yeah, well, that's it's <laughs> that's a sub. Yeah. Okay. So maybe the Dyn Audio is the way to go in terms of uh, price appropriateness here. Ah, there's another. Another oh. option, okay. and that is that I have um, a gold node integrated in uh -huh. the video system with this, the Soul 6s, and the gold node has an unusual feature. It mm. has analog bass boost, and it kicks in at 50 hertz, and it has two settings, mild and heavy, but they probably okay. call it, you know, one and two. Mm. And so if you set it to the heavier version, I think it gives you a 60B boost at 20 and it kicks in at about 50 hertz so it's the you know the bottom end is just really elevated yeah and that's how i have my my soul sixes set up ah because the driver is perfectly capable of, of digging deep it just needs a little bit of an eq and because this eq is analog it's not 
DSP-based, there's no latency. Hmm. It's like a tone control, except it's built into the amplifier. Right. And it works really well. So I don't actually have my Zoo subwoofer hooked up right now on the, on the Soul 6s. Because with that 60B boost at 20 that kicks in at 50, they have all the bass I would ever want. And that's what I'm use what we are using with our television. So when we, you know, we see mostly we don't have uh we don't stream anything. We just mm. buy DVDs that we like to see. Mm -hmm. And mostly it's it's not action, it's like uh, what do you call it, plot driven. Yes. So Character, it's much more yeah, yeah. it's it's dialogue and it's yeah. some background, you know, scenic fill. But every once in a while there's some low stuff going on and plenty. I don't need any more. Actually, we should mention this, or rather I should mention this, is that I think these are by far my favorite, like two thousand euro-ish stand mount for dialogue-driven drama. Because the the voices sound so thick and rich, but not yeah. too much, you know? But just that kind of I guess I think about it like a it makes me Embodied. think of, Yes, just like this. But I like it with the tweeter at the bottom, so it doesn't, you know, like give me too much air above. So it really concentrate concentrates the voice in the chest of whoever's, you know, whoever's talking on screen. So these are great for, yeah, that kind of TV program or movie or whatever. I I much prefer that to the the Bowers and Wilkins because they're a very <laughs> very different animal, and uh, the Waterdale Linton are kind of closer to the zoo. But they're not as finessed up the top. I don't think the mid-range pops quite as much, but I wouldn't expect as much because the speaker is it's 1,200 euros with the stands. And that's why I really love that speaker so much because they thought about the stand part of the equation. And I'm not saying this is a failing from Zoo that they haven't done that, but it does put a lot of extra work on the, uh, on the customer's plate to sort out, right? Yeah, I know you said you've got flexibility, but you've also got the you know the difficulty of finding the stand for you. Um, I I don't know where the answer is going to lie with that, but well, I guess I'll find out something of it. I'll discover something eventually. I think. And I believe that you have one other speaker in kind of that price range, right? Is that the the PSB the PSB speaker? Oh yes, the yes the um, what is it the called? Passive uh, fifty, yeah, yeah, yeah. The passive fifty is um, it's a taller speaker. It is. 3,000-ish, I think, some, something like that. Uh, that comes with a pair of stands, but it's they're, they're very low. I think too low for the zoos, but I did try it. I just thought it looked a bit weird. I thought it was too much of a low rider situation. Uh -huh. Maybe it was better with the tweeter on top in that particular case, but I think the PSB is a more relaxed, sort of standoffish kind of speaker. It's nowhere near as forward and pushy with the sound as, as, as the zoos are. I, guess, I just think maybe Paul Barton's gone for, I guess, a more sort of classical response in that he's really targeted to getting a, a sort of harm and curve type response, which I don't think Sean does at all. Um, I could be wrong there. I could be wrong. But um, I'm not saying that anything goes. I think just, just because you don't go for harm, it doesn't mean you throw everything out of the window. But it's, it's a much more polite, I think it's a more refined speaker, the PSB. It's just not quite as exciting to listen to as the uh, as the zoo, and I think for every maybe two or three people that really enjoy a, a zoo sound, there'll be one person who says like it's too much, 
it's too much of a, a strong flavor because I'm the kind of person that likes strong coffee, spicy curries, right? I like strong flavors in a lot of my life. You know, I like bold colors in, you know, I just like things that stand out because I, maybe it's because I stand out because I'm two meters tall, you know? So maybe it's that, but yeah, I like strong flavors. This is probably why I'm drawn to a zoo speaker, but it's not just that. It's because it, it does energize a lot of the music that I like, which is very energetic music. I think if you're a classical, classical listener or maybe a jazz fan, maybe the PSB would better suit you, but you have to like that sort of laid back sound. You have to enjoy sinking into your couch with maybe a glass of something and, you know, putting your feet up, you know, it's that kind of vibe, you know, yeah. the zoo is not that kind of vibe. It's like edge of the seat, like, let's go, come on. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. But that said, it has more refinement that then you would give it credit for if mm -hmm. you go back to Zeus beginning when they really played up sort of the anti-establishment punk attitude. You know, they were really, and at that time also, this was well before Stereophile would ever even consider reviewing a Zoo speaker. It's like Zoo hadn't somehow made friends with or crossed paths with more of the mainstream press. They were really still sort of an outsider. And when they went to shows, they deliberately played music that drove most of sort of the classic audiophiles out of the room. They played at pretty good volumes, and they just played music that a lot of the showgoers didn't know what to do with. And in a way, Zoo sort of delighted in the fact that they had sort of this the anti-hero personality. And let's let's grant it, they were also younger. I mean, this was when uh, Sean's partner was still there, uh, Adam mm -hmm. DeCarrier. And we called them the zoo boys, even though maybe at that they had maybe already three kids at the time, but we never called them the zoo men. We mm. just called them the zoo boys. And now 20 years have passed. And by now, zoo has been reviewed in all the major magazines, be it mainstream or be it a little bit more sort of off the beaten track. Mm. And they have made friends, I think, across the board. And I think this speaker sort of proves that because it appeals to somebody like me who comes more from a classical background but then has sort of crossed over to world music and some electronica. Mm. And it appeals to somebody like you who listens to a lot of electronic music and singer, songwriter, folk, rock, mm -hmm. contemporary stuff. And the speaker is equally well-versed in both, in both worlds. It's not so specialized that it sort of forces you to handpick what you can listen to out of your library. I mean, I would say that Zoo are the not the only, but one of maybe three exhibitors at any American show that would play music that I would know and enjoy. So this is why I have this strong disconnect with hi-fi shows, yeah. you know, because I thought it would get better and it didn't, you know, it's still, it's the same now as it was 15 years ago when I started. So yeah, for, I, I'm always drawn to the zoo room because I know I'm going to hear something that I'm, <laughs> I'm going to like, and also something that I don't know that's kind of weird in the sort of, in the, avant-garde noise realm or something like that or some weird ass jazz thing but not in the traditional jazz sense so i i like it like them from it's not i don't think it's just playing up the anti-hero thing i think that's really who they are and, and it's a bit like me you know talking about electronic music all the time well not all the time but a lot i'm not doing it to piss people off i'm doing it because this is who i am and i want to talk to more people like me and i guess zoo want to find customers like them with their kinds of taste, which is, which is me. Like, I think of all the speaker companies that have ever existed that I've dealt with, 
Zoo are the one that really talk to me in terms of like the whole package, right? Everything, you know, like the the way they put together things there. Yeah, also their positioning, but I like I like the direct sell model. But I think the direct sell model is why they don't get reviewed in Stereophile. I'm pretty sure Stereophile has a rule that says you have to be available in so many dealers in the USA for it to qualify as a review. But you said that you've seen a review recently. Oh no, they have they have been reviewed. In fact, there is a very interesting interview between Sean and uh, John Atkinson, and it's interesting because. John Atkinson asks questions from his perspective of having done an enormous amount of uh, measurements mm-hmm. on speakers. Mm. And so according to that background, some of the decisions that Sean has made are unusual. Right. Okay. right? They, they're sort of not mainstream decisions. And so you could see that John's engineering perspective maybe was curious or possibly even found fault with some of the decisions. But by the same token, he acknowledged that he had listened to the speaker and he was surprised just how much fun it was and how much he enjoyed it. And now he wanted to find out from Sean, how had he gotten there? Right. You know, okay. with, how had he gotten from using unconventional means and maybe even going against the grain and still mm. managed to produce a speaker that could be so much fun to listen to? You see, that word fun is a bit of a... Pr- problematic word in some respects, because people often use it to be kind to a speaker that's rough around the edges. This one isn't. Which is why I had to bring in the finesse word, because it really isn't. It's very, very delicately, um, it it handles the treble in in a very beautiful way. And I I really do appreciate that. It's It's not rough at all. And it's certainly smoother than the Klipsch Forte 4 that I have in my cellar now because they're boxed up because i've got room for them here um yeah definitely smoother in that respect and i'm wondering whether over the years actually that aspect has gotten more refined with sue because i do i do remember that sean has experimented with, with different tweeters with just different tweeter models right and different capacitors because he knows the value that he wants but he's also found out that when you change the capacitor the sound changes more than you would think in fact when i asked him about what he thinks, the three different versions of the DWX, how mm. they distinguish themselves, he explained, you know, you would think it shouldn't be much of a change if a change just a capacitor on the tweeter that kicks in at 12 kilohertz. Mm. It shouldn't make much of a difference. He says, surprisingly, it does even affect the bass. Now, that's psychoacoustic. But you change something on the top, you change our perspective to how we relate to what happens on the bottom. He said, it's very bizarre. He said, I can't explain it from a, from a technical standpoint, but he said, if I listen to it, if I, if I improve the quality of the treble, mm. something about the clarity in the bass and midrange seems to change as well. That's how he described it. Isn't that because, like, I, I always tend to see bass as like a ball and different, like, let's use sports balls as an example, like basketball, tennis ball, golf ball. They all have different surface textures. So that surface texture of the bass comes from, I think, the the uppermost frequencies, because it, it's 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 coloring in. It's almost like a three D mapping of an environment, right? You get the 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 kind of contour lines that determine, you know, whether you're going uphill, downhill, and things like that. But then there's the smaller, whether it's I don't know, like if we're talking about like a three D mapping of a a computer game, like whether it's grass or concrete or whatever then that is done 
by the tweeter, isn't it? Like in terms of the surface textures of... Yes, and it's, it's also, I think, the, the precision of the leading edge. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about the bass note and we're talking about all the harmonics that are stacked on top of the bass note mm -hmm. that then no longer are produced by traditionally a, mid, a, a woofer, mm -hmm. but now the mid-range is handling some of that, and then the tweeter may handle the highest harmonics. Mm -hmm. With the zoo, you have one driver doing it all. So you don't have any confusion in the time domain. And if now what you do is you improve the clarity of the tweeter by giving it a, a better cap, um, maybe that has less distortion, you even further improve sort of that unity of the of the mm -hmm. bass drum kick rising in unison from the fundamental all the way out to the harmonics. The mm -hmm. timing is more crisp. And that, that then gives you a better sense of what the British call Pratt, pace, mm -hmm. rhythm, and timing. Right. That sense of sort of propulsion and forward momentum and like... The musicians are playing in the pocket and you know your body wants to move in response it's mm. not sluggish it's sort of sitting forward in your chair paying attention mm -hmm. because yes. you're drawn in and i think the zoos do that extremely well it's just surprising that this translates even to classical music and i think that this generation of zoo does it better than i remember the early zoos that I reviewed, because those i thought were more specialized and the kind of music that zoo like to play at shows yes versus playing, you know, a Mozart piano concerto or some Vivaldi right. Baroque. And the Vivaldi Baroque now on these little speakers works surprisingly well. I was really shocked. Huh, okay. So that I think that Sean has learned how to sort of massage his core recipe, the one that he's worked on for 20 years, by refining the driver, hmm. learning about how to minimize the cabinet's influence that was the whole transition from the much heavier original Druid cabinet to the Okume ply, where he, you know, you lift it up, you lift the sole up. It's really not that heavy for the size. Mm. So it's a lower mass cabinet that he deliberately made to be quieter. So mm -hmm. you have less box talk that still further improves the timing quality of his drivers. Mm. And some of that even translates to now this entry level monitor. It still has those same qualities. Talking of that, in fact, this is one suggestion I think you and I would both have for Zoo themselves, right? Zoo, when they sit in front of the camera and they're presenting a brand new speaker model, would you agree that they need to go into more detail in that video? If it was me, absolutely. But by the same token, I think that their audience appreciates their casual attitude about it all. It's basically set it up and hit play and enjoy. And here's a few things that you can do, but they're really not that important. They're not gonna make that big of a difference. Hmm. I think that's sort of part of the whole zoo package. So you that think that sort of nonchalant attitude towards the techni technicalities is? I think. Yeah. I mean, I the marketing, the ex-marketing guy in me sometimes feels a little bit embarrassed about just how casual they go about it. Hmm. But then I also realize they know their audience really well. I mean, better than anybody else. And I think they know exactly how to speak to their audience. It's the opposite of the agonizing audiophile who worries about pucks and cones and cables and you know cleaning his, his contacts and taking out a, a tape measure to make sure both speakers are down to the millimeter the same distance. That goes completely the other way. And I think Zoo might be overplaying the opposite, but I don't mm. think it's to their detriment because 20 years later, they are still here. And sure. they seem to be doing really well. 
I would just wonder yeah. maybe, then maybe they could make a second video that kind of goes into the, takes a bit of a deeper dive into okay, what's the tweeter? What's this the the um the waveguide made of? You know, what's the the ring made of? Why is it there? What's the driver, the main driver made of? Like why is it paper? And then talk about the different um versions. So you've got the Superfly and the Supreme. Like what what do you get extra? I think yeah, maybe okay. maybe some of that was in the original video, but I think no, I, I see what you're getting at. Because in order for me to get that information for my review, I had to ask Sean more than once. And it right. took the final answer I actually added post-publication because right. it took him that long to get back. And I know that he doesn't really enjoy it. He doesn't enjoy sitting no. down and having <laughs> to write it out. Right. And I also know he's very, very busy. So when he answers such questions, he has to find time like after hours. Yes, yeah. But I would agree that for people like you and me and customers like ourselves, who just enjoy a little bit more of an in-depth presentation, that information should be somewhere on the Zoo website. You shouldn't have to go ask for it. Right, because there's lots of technical specs on the website, but it doesn't really tell the story in the same way because you don't know, okay, is that spec important? Like, what sort of value level should I be placing on each of these? So Sean might talk about, well, okay, the main story here is the driver, right? Focus on the, the main driver. But it's it just has one line. In, on the spec sheet, as does the tweeter, as does a lot of other things. So I think I think it's great that they're doing videos to announce these products, but maybe a second one that you know kind of goes into a deeper dive. And then he only has to do it once. And then he doesn't have to answer any of our painful emails about this particular <laughs> like, really technical feature. What's that, Sean? You know, he doesn't have to do it. So he could just right. get a list of like frequently asked questions that he anticipates and, and just goes through them. And then that's it. He's home and hosed. Never has to kind of talk to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. anyway, okay. Is our work done here, Sujan? I think it's a wrap. I think it's a wrap too. Marvellous. Yeah. All right, Sujan. Well, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Six Moons' Srajan Iban. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt.